He comes up this morning. Um, we're looking at the, uh, the book of Revelation. We're looking specifically at what Jesus has to say to the churches. The, the Greek word uh, for the book is apocalypsis, which is the very word that we get the idea of apocalypse from. And it's kind of fascinating because simply the Greek word only means revelation, a revelation. But what has happened is that the word, because of what's contained in this book, the word has come to mean kind of a cataclysmic uh, events or, or you know, world-changing kind of events. Uh, and, and so, you know, some of you... I uh, know that I like movies, so for Pastor Appreciation Month, you give me a bunch of movie passes. And uh, so yester uh, yesterday or Friday, I can't remember which day, uh, Lisa and I used one of those movie passes to go see Ghostbusters. Okay? All right. I, don't take my review. If you want to see it, see it, but it sucked. Uh, I mean, I, I was glad I didn't have to pay for it. I'm sorry for the person who did pay for it. Um, you know, probably part of the problem is I'm comparing it to the experience I had with the first one, which was far more campy and funny and all kinds of stuff. But it, 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 it's, it struck me as sort of interesting that there is such an interest in uh, like movies and, and TV shows that are sort of into the world kind of things. And, uh, uh, these, these events that lead to a kind of dystopia, uh, you know, an aftershock living in the world after some horrible, awful thing has happened. And I'm, I'm sort of curious why that is so prevalent now. And, and maybe some of it's that people are, you know, experiencing a kind of hopelessness. What is there after, uh, you know, there, when there is no God, when there is no a sense of justice or righteousness or any of these things. And so it's, it's, it's sort of, it, it's getting to be sort of fascinating to me to watch how many movies, how many different shows are about kind of the end of the world sort of thing and what do we do afterwards. Well, those are works of fiction. Um, this scripture that's, that we're reading is revelation from the one who knows the end from the beginning. And uh, the whole of the book, particularly uh, from chapter 4 till the end of, of Revelation, is a, is a kind of look at, you know, how it all unfolds, how it ends, and who triumphs in the end. And um, the start of the book is very specific. It's Jesus' word to the churches that existed at that time. And as you, we go through these these messages that he has to each of the churches, you'll realize, if you're listening, that it's really a word of Jesus to every church of every period. And so today we take on the, the first of the messages, and that begins in chapter 2, and it's to the church at Ephesus. So I, I invite you to take uh, your bulletin, and we'll read out loud together this message directly from the head of the church, from Jesus himself, to the church that was uh, 
gathered together in the city of Ephesus. Now let's read this together. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let me talk to you a little bit about these messages, these, these seven messages to the seven churches. On a, a practical basis, if you were to look on the map where uh, John is at this time, he's at, on the Isle of of Patmos, which is just off of uh, uh, Turkey in the Mediterranean Sea. And what he's doing is he's writing in exile. He's writing the vision that he's seeing. He's writing it, and this letter will go to all these seven different cities. Now, the letter is, is what is called a circulating letter. So this letter will be John's words to uh, all of the, the churches that he lists in this group there, they actually, according to the map, the churches and the, the list uh, follow geographically. Ephesus is first, and then it moves on to the next one. Now, the interesting thing here in the way that's written is, generally speaking, you write the body of a letter, and then you do postscripts. Like you say, okay, to Ephesus... Here's a word to you, Thyatira, here's a word to you, Smyrna, here's a word to you. Instead, he begins the letter, <laughs> these become prescripts instead of postscripts. The second thing that's interesting here is that normally, if you have a letter that's specific to Ephesus, you only want Ephesus to read it. In other words, if you've written a letter to someone or a group of people, but you have a specific word, you kind of... Make that a bit private and say, this is for so-and-so. But what we see here is he puts it at the first. He makes it so that every church sees what he writes to Ephesus. So in other words, they may think, well, we got off easy on that one. And yet he's saying to every church exactly the same thing that he's saying to Ephesus. So one of the conclusions that we should draw, can draw, is that what he's saying to Ephesus, he's saying to Risen King. What he's saying to Ephesus, he's saying to every church that has ever existed, he just happens to be singling out Ephesus, but the principles and the teaching that's here 
is teaching this for us as well. The second thing is this. Um, this is a prophetic message. One of the things that you, ha you have to understand in each of these messages, there is a prophetic edge to this. There is a, there is a, 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 a very clear sense of the prophetic. The prophetic always consists of two things. Now I'm asking you to think with me. I know it's early in the morning. But I want you to think with me because I want you to understand the Bible that you read. There's always two elements to any prophetic message. The one is the blessing for those who obey. And then the woe or the, the sense of curse or the sense of this is bad stuff that's going to happen to you if you don't obey. Always there's a prophetic message. There's no gray area with the prophetic. Now, I'll take it aside for a minute. Some of you are not very prophetic. Okay, you're diplomatic, you're tactful, you know, you like to not hurt anybody's feelings. But if you know anybody who's not tactful, they're probably a prophet in waiting. <laughs> you know, somebody that nobody likes, you know, somebody that's always felt misunderstood. Someone who always, you know, it's all black and white. It's, there's no gray. There's all of that. that there's a, a wiring that's almost prophetic. And, and the way the word of God comes across is often very prophetically. It is a confrontation with the status quo. There's a, there's a sense in which the spirit of God is always destabilizing the status quo. And so there's this prophetic peace. And so, you know, if you're one of those people that everything about you is to maintain peace, conflict, avoid it at any cost then sometimes what you're going to find is that the Spirit of God just tweaks you. And the Word of God tweaks you because, because it, it, it wants to destabilize what you think you've stabilized. So that change only comes, change only comes with risk and change only comes with a sense of, of shaking up what you think you've established. And that, that is never more true than in this letter to the, to the Ephesians. They think they've established something. They think they've achieved something. They think they've attained a certain status. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, speaking prophetically and directly to the Apostle John, comes to destabilize everything that they thought they'd stabilized in that church. Now, the prophetic in John's day, in this early days of the church, always came across in two ways. Now, there possibly are others, but, but there were, generally speaking, it was two ways. A prophet or a prophetic person would come before the church and in the moment have a word from the Lord. You have to understand, there were no Bibles. There were no pew Bibles. There were no, there were no uh, you know... PowerPoints or any of the overheads or any of that kind of stuff. The, the word was in the mouth of the person delivering it. And so there was a, there was a sense of, of a very real sense that there were direct messages coming to the church through these prophetic people. And that's why when Jesus speaks of the people in Ephesus, he says, I commend you 
for the fact that you have rooted out those who are not apostles but who think they are. Or those who think they speak for me and don't speak for me. And so Jesus uh, commends them for this because, you see, in those days, it was a very immediate kind of thing where the word of God would come to a person, they would speak it, they would speak it to the church, and the church would either receive it or they would not. It was either from the Lord or it was not. The second type of prophetic, and again, I, I know, I just want you to understand some of the framework here, but the second type of prophetic is that a, a person would have an individual or a private revelation, vision, experience with God, and then they would report that vision to the church, or they would report that revelation to the church. So John, what we see from history, is John had experience of both. As a matter of fact, he was known in Ephesus. He was one who had come as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had come to Ephesus, and he had spoken prophetic words to the people in Ephesus. He was a known prophet, a known apostle, commissioned by Jesus to speak to the church at Ephesus. But this particular time, John is having an experience, a private experience with Jesus while in exile. He writes it, he reports it, and then he sends it to them. This had the same effect as if he were standing before them, speaking it to them, but at this juncture, it is a report of a revelation. It's a report of a vision. So the people in Ephesus would have taken this very, very seriously. They would have seen this as a direct kind of uh, Revelation, prophetic message that comes from God. So this would have been taken very seriously. Now, there are some ways in which we live in a day where people uh, have kind of dismissed the fact that God still speaks. Now, there's a uniqueness to this message. It was, it was the Spirit of God giving a revelation for the church for all time. That, that is unique. It is a part of what we call the canon of Scripture. It is, it is God's own word to His church forever. But wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, wherever Christ is manifesting through His Spirit, there is in, that, in our midst, there is the Spirit of prophecy. And the prophetic word of the Lord still comes to do the same thing. You know, even as we are serious and faithful and committed to expounding the scriptures and, and spending our time in the, in the scriptures, it's almost in many ways you can get lost in trying to get the information about the scripture instead of having the transformation from the scripture. The prophetic move of the word of God will always, always come after you in a way that unsettles you, that destabilizes the areas of your life. Not because God hates you, but because you and I are often too content with wherever we kind of end up. And the spirit of God has a destiny for us and has a direction for us. And the way that he wants us to get there, often he has to destabilize, unsettle us, even in some ways tweak our expectations and our assumptions 
so that we can become the men or the women of God that he is calling us to be. See, Ephesus is an interesting church. Let me show you a few things about it. Um, Ephesus had had some of the best pastors that have ever existed. For example, it was founded by the Apostle Paul. He was the founding pastor. So if they had a building and they had photographs, Paul would be right up there on the hallway. Okay? Pastor from 44 A.D. to 46 A.D. Kind of preached 2,000 sermons in two years. One day, one guy fell out the window. You know, kind of uh, all that kind of, you know, there would be all of this kind of stuff. Because, I mean, the founding pastor is, is Paul. And one of the greatest preachers that ever existed was a man by the name of Apollos. Which <laughs> Apollos itself is a reference to the Greek god who was a messenger. And so Apollos was this amazing orator, this amazing preacher. And he preached at Ephesus. He was one of their leading people there. Timothy, Paul sent Timothy to pastor the church at Ephesus. So they got a, they got a hall of fame of pastors here in Ephesus, and even John himself. And so Jesus, and I decided today I would do a little biblical alliteration for you. This, the first kind of point here is there's a whole lot of recognition going on in this, in this passage. There's a lot of recognition. Jesus does not just go after them for what he has against them, but he recognizes who they are, the struggle that they've been through. And part of what he is also doing is trying to get them to recognize him. See, in a sense, somebody could be incredibly prophetic, but if we don't recognize it, the words just fall to the ground. Somebody could be speaking for God, but if we don't want to hear it, if we don't recognize this is the Lord speaking to me, and I keep it outside of me, and I keep it away from my heart. You know how I often know when people don't recognize that something's been from the Lord? They say something like this, wow, you really gave us something to think about today. You know what they're saying? I mean, not always, but most of the time what they're saying is, as soon as I get out of here, I will never think about that again. And the reason is because either it's too tough, it's too hard, or I have a resistance or whatever it is, I want to protect something. And so I'll think about it, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna act on it. I'm not gonna surrender to it. I'm not gonna yield to it. Do you know when the Spirit of the Lord is even we're not Ephesus, we're New City, but when the Spirit of the Lord is moving in New City, you don't think about it, you jump into it. Amen. I mean, you know, how many times I love to watch, go to a pool and watch little kids and their moms or dads saying, jump, daddy will catch you. <laughs> Every now and then you'll see the dad move away when they jump. <laughs> to show the kid that it's okay, you're safe, you'll be all right. The kid comes up, you tricked me. <laughs> you know, there's the, the kind of thing in a way that, that oh, I want to be so safe when I jump. I want to make sure I have success. I want to make sure there's no pain. I want to make sure I'm okay. I want to make sure, you know, if I jump, you're going to catch me. And there, there, there's some sense in which when we're, when we're really talking about, you know, 
yielding to the word of God, you don't know fully what the end result of it's going to be. You don't know what the guarantee is. You know the guarantee you want. But it's not always the guarantee that he gives. And there's some sense in which if you listen carefully to the way that Jesus is recognizing the Ephesians. The Ephesians are living in a time and a place that's dangerous. Ephesus was the New York City of its day. Ephesus was the cultural center. It was the demonic center. It was the enterprise center. It was the entrepreneurial center. It was, it was a place of, of power. It was a place of incredible, incredible influence. And of course, the people who were Christians wanted God to make them safe. Of course, they wanted God to make them successful. Of course, they wanted protection. They wanted all those things. But at the same time, the Bible says stuff like this. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Now, we wouldn't have too much trouble with to live as Christ if they didn't put to die as gain next to it. <laughs> to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What's this absent from the body stuff? You understand what I'm saying? The guarantee that you and I often want, the expectation, particularly the one, and sometimes that, you know, in Jesus' name, I just want to punch someone in the nose. When they say to me, it's all for the best. Let me just whack you one time and see, is that all for the best? Don't comfort me with that crap. Because in that moment, it doesn't feel like the best. In that moment, it's not what I expected. You understand what Jesus is speaking of here is a church that's trying to get leverage so they'll be okay. And the more they do that, what's happening is the more they drift. They think they're holding firm. They would see themselves as a conservative church. They would see themselves as an orthodox church. They would see themselves as a persevering church. And Jesus says, yes, all those things are true of you. But at the same time, he says, I have this against you. You see, I don't know about you, but if somebody says to me, I like, I like this about you, I like this about you, I like this, but I don't like this. Which one am I going to listen to? I'm only going to hear, right? I mean, come on. Thank you for the nice things. But what is this you have against me? Now, recognize something with me. Jesus does not nitpick. For example, he doesn't say, I don't like the color of the carpet at the church. He doesn't say, the music is too loud. He doesn't say, I like hymns, you guys, are pray you guys are singing Bethel and Hillsong. Come on. You understand? That's the things that people in churches get mad at. That's the, oh, I'm against this. I'm against that. You know, when, when I'm going to tell you a secret. I probably won't tell the others. Please don't record that. No. Now, one of the reasons. One of the reasons that I really believe in preaching with content and even time, even making you sit there and listen, 
is because it weeds out. It weeds out those who are just here for entertainment, those who are here just punching their clock. It weeds them out. It, it raises up people who have religious spirits because they get furious with me. Why are you making us stay so long? Why are you talking so long? And I go, because I want to see that. Because once I see that, then I know what the issue is. And you can't lead a group of people who are religious. You can only lead a group of people who are passionate about Jesus. And people who are passionate about Jesus, an hour and 15 minutes never seems like enough. But people who are not passionate, hour and 15 minutes is eternity in hell. It doesn't matter how funny I might be. I can't help but smirk on that one. Sorry. So you catch, if you catch this, Jesus goes, I have something against you. That's a huge word. That's a prophetic word. That's the whoa. That's right in here. That's the you better pay attention prophetic. That's right in here. And so he says it. You do not have love for Jesus himself. Now, this is so interesting because a lot of times we think, well, people lack doctrine. Or we think people lack discipline. Or we think people lack courage or whatever it might be. Because they needed courage and they needed discipline. But Jesus said they had courage because they stood up against what was wrong. He said they had discipline because they continued to do it. They were patiently enduring. But he says what you lack is love. And I, I heard this one pastor speak on, on this subject, and he said this. He said, if you go back and you look at Peter when he denied Jesus, you might easily say, Peter, why weren't you courageous? I mean, even though you would have died with Jesus, why didn't you go ahead and say, yes, I'm a follower of, the, of that Lord Jesus. I'm, he's my Lord. He's my Savior. Why didn't you do that? Well, it had to be because he lacked love. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because G when Jesus restored Peter, he didn't say, Peter, do you, are you afraid? He didn't say, Peter, you need to be more disciplined. He didn't say, Peter, you need to be more courageous. He said, Peter, do you love me? When he's restoring him from his denial, he didn't say anything about courage or discipline or any of those things. He said, do you love me? So here, when he speaks to the Ephesians, he says, do you love me? When he spoke to Peter, he said, do you love me? There was a woman, remember, she had a, an expensive perfume. It was worth an entire year's wages, and she broke this beautiful alabaster container or box that held the perfume, and she anointed Jesus with this perfume. And all those around thought, how extravagant. We could have, you know, Judas, the accountant, said, we could have sold that and, and fed the poor or given it to the poor or whatever. Of course, he was really saying we could have sold that and I could have gotten it because he was stealing from the treasury. But he, he, he echoed the sentiments of the others. This is too extravagant. And Jesus said, no, it's not. 
She has done this because to whom much is forgiven. Now, when you've been forgiven much, you love much. See, if you think you're good, you'll never be passionate about Jesus. You will be angry with him for not making your life easier and better. I'm the oldest of five kids. My, my younger brother is only 13 months younger than me. And uh, so I was, the, I was the super Christian in high school. Um, I, I read this. You, you won't believe this. In a public school, every morning they had me read the scriptures and pray for the whole school. I can't understand how they let that happen. But uh, every morning, so every morning, my poor brother, who's rebellious against God, and who's trying to, you know, fit in with the freaks and geeks, and all, they're like, is that your brother? And my brother would go, yeah, as good as he is, that's how bad I am. And, uh, and it was interesting because that's the way we looked at ourselves. I looked at myself as good. He looked at himself as bad. Do you know what? We were both far from Jesus. Because in my goodness, I thought, I deserve. I'm owed. Look at me. Look at what I've done. That's what, that's what Ephesus, that's what the church at Ephesus was saying. We are owed. We deserve. Why is our life so hard? Why does it never give up? Why do we have to keep persevering? Why aren't we triumphing? Because we are so good. Jesus said, as they focused on their goodness, they lost their love. And Jesus said, all that matters is love. You know, in conserving their church, they lost their love for Jesus. Now, any of us can have this happen. Because there's a problem when you start to defend yourself. You start to defend your righteousness. There's a problem. You know, like when you begin to say... But Lord, I've worked so hard for you. Why will you not give me this or do this or do that for me? I've served you, Lord. In other words, even when we pray, this is, can come out. And you begin to say, Lord, I have a, you know, I have a record of righteousness. Look, Lord, I have a, a resume of godliness. Look at me, Lord. I have a transcript of holiness. And the minute... Friends, the minute you lift up your record, your resume, or your transcript is the minute you should recognize that you're hearing the words, depart from me, for I never knew you. Because as long as it's your record, it's not his record. As long as it's your resume, it's not his resume. If it's your transcript, it's not his transcript. See, until you get to the place where your record no longer matters to you, your transcript, your resume, these are not your points of leverage. Guess what? Because only under law do you have, rev do you have any leverage. Under grace, there is no leverage. If, <laughs> if everything is grace, then everything is undeserved. So therefore, no one has any rep any leverage whatsoever, any greater influence. You know, the greatest saint who ever lived has no more leverage than you do. Because the record that matters is Jesus and it's already set. So 
Do you know, have you ever thought of why we pray in Jesus' name? It's not because it sounds good at the end of a prayer. It's because we're lifting up his record. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're, we're showing his resume. But if everything I've said up to that point is my resume, then I've messed it up. And I'm like the Ephesian, and the Lord Jesus will come, and he will speak prophetically to me, and he says, you've lost your first love. You've lost it. Come on, are you tracking with me at all? So the most important thing to Jesus is, do you love me? So let's, let's think about this for a minute. How do, you, how do you go back to your first love? Well, I kind of like this idea. You remember, you repent, and you renew. Uh, I love it when people renew their vows. As a matter of fact, I probably need to do that for Lisa's sake pretty soon. Okay? I think it's a beautiful thing when you recognize... That love wasn't what you thought it was. That marriage wasn't what you thought it was. That it didn't meet your expectations. It did not fit with your presumptions. And yet, out of maturity and commitment, you choose love. Now, sometimes it's important to remember, why did I love this person in the first place? Maybe, you know, maybe the idea is sometimes with people, they bring out the wedding album and they... They see themselves. But in a lot of ways, it really has to be more mature than the basis on which most people get married. The basis on which most people get married is usually false. Um, if you've ever been infatuated, infatuation is an illusion. It's a deception that either someone or something it's going to help you escape reality. If, you, if you've ever been kind of overcome by romance or overcome by fantasy, it's because you want to escape reality, not because you want to embrace reality. One of the things that you begin to see in a true marriage, not, a, not an untrue one, but a, a, a true and healthy, healthy marriage, is that you cannot, if you're truly one with another person and you're opening your heart to another person, you cannot escape reality. It is reality. You think that it was going to be pain relief, but it becomes pain. And I'll tell you why. It's because none of your tricks work with a spouse. Um, That might be the loudest amen ever there. <laughs> See, like, for example, um, Lisa, my wife, could care less about how charming I am. She does not respond to any of my flattery. She could care less about, uh, you know, the things that I point out that I think will make her forget the things I don't want to point out. And she focuses on... on Stuff that really matters for our family. For example, uh, I was having this amazing experience with the Lord at Promise Keepers back in the, in the 90s. I call her up on the phone. I said, oh, the Holy Spirit is just filling me. It's so wonderful. 42 pastors, 42,000 pastors here. The Spirit of the Lord is descending on us like a dove. And she goes, did you pay the water bill? 
but you don't understand, honey. The Holy Spirit is coming on me in power. She says, I got two kids that need a bath, and they just shut the water off. I went, oh, you know, I wanted to escape reality. She was dragging me back into reality. See, a lot of times what happens when that goes on is you, you then go find someone else. So you can escape reality again. And maybe it's somebody at your work who thinks you're wonderful. Or somebody who thinks you're a hero who listens to everything you say as if you're speaking as an oracle of God. Until they get to know you. And it starts all over again. Because no matter where you go, you take yourself. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying you can't escape the reality. You're married to me. I'm not your pain relief. I'm not your escape. I'm your savior. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the one who loves you. And in my love for you, I have to say to you the things you don't want to hear. But because I love you, I'm going to hold on and say it. And I'm going to say it even in a way you don't want to hear, but it's for your sake. It's very powerful here because you get, the, you get the choice. I get the choice. The Ephesians got the choice. Will I see our relationship as it really is or will I continue to live in fantasy? See, repentance is not, repentance is not making up a new reality. It's the recognition that the reality I thought is not real and I have to turn toward what is real and what Jesus is saying, the only real thing, the only thing that matters is love. Love for him. Love for the, each other. Those kind of things. Remembering our first love. Now, the last thing I want to bring to you is the idea of reward. So in a sense, we start, you know, you recognize this is the voice of the Lord speaking to us. He's saying, look, you can't have a resume. You can't have... A record, you can't have, you know, a, a transcript of your own righteousness, but you have mine. And then he says, when you remember how much I've done for you, what I've done for you, how I have loved you, then can you not repent of looking at me the wrong way and start looking at me the right way? Instead of, instead of saying, God, you've got to live up to my expectations, you begin to renew your expectations according to his reality, his truth. And then the last thing he says is, if you do this, there's a roar. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life was closed down. It was, it was veiled after the fall of Adam and Eve because God didn't want... He didn't want his people to live eternally in a state of sin. But Jesus is saying because of what he's done for you, because of his resume, his record, he has now opened up the tree of life for us to eat and then to live forever with the Lord. He has bound now his life to your life that as long as he lives, you will live. And you will live in a way that is utterly and completely satisfying and fulfilling. Um, I gotta wrap this up, but I wanna I wanna tell you a quick story. 
in our family, we had really bad news this week. And uh, it, was, it wasn't completely unexpected, but it was still devastating. We, we had been, my, my daughter and son-in-law had been fostering a child for five months, and he had, he had become the sunshine of all of our lives. We, you know, I finally learned how to FaceTime and all that kind of stuff just so I could see him every day so Lisa could talk with him every day. We, pay, we played patty cake every day. I play it in Greek, just, no, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, we play, played this with him every day. We saw his face every day. We gave kisses every day. This week, the court said that he needs to go back to his family. And, uh, and it was kind of devastating because it wasn't his mother or grandmother. It's, it's some, some aunt removed, uh, kind of a, a relationship removed, who's 50 years old. There are no men in the in the. In the life and this this woman's a full-time worker and is going to take care of him and we were crushed by it because we just felt like one we we lost what was so powerful to us but two we don't feel like it's best for him and my you know i'm talking to my daughter and and she's she's like her heart has been ripped out and our hearts have been ripped out and you know and you think sometimes but god we pray God, we asked for this judge to make a decision. God, we did this, we did that. And, and it's so easy to think, but if you really love us, wouldn't you just keep this from happening? It hurts so much. And yet the Lord says the same, whether it's a good circumstance or a bad circumstance. Do you love me? Uh, you know what happens a lot of times to many of us when we don't get our way? we immediately start withholding love. When it doesn't go our way, we immediately start withholding love. How can I love you if I can't trust you? How can I love you if you can't do what I want you to do? And oftentimes what happens is we don't examine our own expectations or our own need to escape from pain or our own pain relief stuff. We don't examine that. We just say, why are you causing me pain? Because you know in his power, he could do anything then it becomes a case, do I trust him in his wisdom? Do I trust him in his wisdom that somehow even this painful thing, according to Paul in Romans 8.28, he works all things together for good. It doesn't mean they are good. It just means he, your Lord, your lover, your friend, works all things together for good. It's, it's not hard to say when it's all going your way I love you Lord but in some ways I love you Lord when all's going my way doesn't count if I don't also say I love you Lord when it didn't go my way because there's a there's a there's an attribute of love that many of us have never seemed to give ourselves to and that is if it's real love it never ends it never fails. It never stops. And if it did stop, for example, if you told somebody, I love you, I love you, and then you go, but I don't love you anymore, then it wasn't love. It was something else. Maybe it was, you know, you were good for me for a time. Maybe you were a service, gave services to me that I appreciated. Maybe I liked the way you looked for a time. But that's not love, friends. It's only love if it never fails. And so the prophetic message 
that I hear from the Lord is, it isn't so much, do you have your doctrine all square? It's not that that's in, not important. Do you have all your religious discipline in order? Not that that's not important. But he says, do you, do you, at the heart of the matter, do you love me? Do you love me? And if you do, then you'll live with me forever. I, I've said this before. But one of the great writers of Christian writers said it this way. When you are in the presence of the Lord, even the worst stage and period of your life will seem like nothing more than a night in a bad hotel. Let's stand together. We have some people... uh, who will pray with you up here at the front you might want to just do business with God before you leave today and just say you know I've let my love drift I've let my expectations uh, move away from the love of God to my business my home my family I'm looking for satisfaction in other places than I'm looking for satisfaction and passion with Jesus. Today is a day to renew that passion. The reward is, you got, if you're passionate about Him, you get to live in that passion for all eternity. If you're not passionate about Him, then you get to live separate from Him for all eternity. Either way, you get what you want. What Jesus is saying to His church, He's saying, church, do you not remember Do you not remember the height that you once had? Do you not remember the love, the joy, the passion that you once had? Will you remember? Will you repent? Will you renew, he said. I just know for me, as I go through really feeling almost like the death in my own family, I know that this is a period where I'm renewing my love for him. I'm renewing my passion for him. I know I've fought hard for him. I know I've prayed hard. I know I've done all these things, but none of those count. None of them matter. All that matters is what he's done for me. Would you just remember right now? Would you repent if you've drifted? And would you renew your vows to him right now? He's worthy. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But the reward is him not always what I've prayed for it's not always what I've desired the reward is Jesus himself Lord we seal what you're doing now in Jesus name amen Amen. we got some people here who will pray with you if you want to just kind of do a little business with God before you go we'll see you next week